Welcome to Places, everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In this episode, I want to explore citizenship in the arts and what it means for art to address citizenship. Is citizenship simply about having rights and membership within one's country? Or is it a more active stance that incorporates voting, advocacy, and protest? When we talk about citizenship in America, what comes to mind first? Something we have or something we practice? I discussed this idea with my next guest, director Sahim Ali, who is himself a dual citizen. Sahim grew up in Kenya and moved to the United States to attend college. He was passionate about becoming an artist, but knew his parents wouldn't approve and for several years told them he was studying computer science. Sahim became a U.S. citizen about a decade ago and has steadily become more and more in demand as a director. He just wrapped up a show at Lincoln Center called The Rolling Stone and will soon present a revival of Anna DeVere Smith's acclaimed play Fires in the Mirror at Signature Theater in New York. He's also developing a musical set in Kenya and has several other projects in between. All of Sahim's work has a distinct awareness of its setting. Namely, the characters are not only situated within their families or relationships, but in their cities, their states, and their countries. The Rolling Stone portrays how characters in Uganda respond to their country's policies on same-sex relationships. Fires in the Mirror portrays how Jewish and Black residents in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, feel valued or devalued by their city. The larger question is, what does an aggravated citizen do? Relocate or attempt to change what doesn't work? Sahim says he maintains constant awareness about the responsibilities of citizenship. He says, I know what I didn't have before and what I do have now. I try to bring that into my art and into the rehearsal room. This is my interview with Sahim Ali. Hello, Sahim. Hi. So we're actually recording this in Lincoln Center. Um, in Laura Benanti's former dressing room, <laughs> which is fitting because you currently have a show up at Lincoln Center Theater called The Rolling Stone, um, which is really excellent and runs through the end of August, I believe. Yes, August 25th. I want to delve into this first because it's the show you currently have up, of course. And it's also one that I think leads well into a theme I really want to probe with you, which is that of citizenship. Mm. In The Rolling Stone, we meet several characters who live in Uganda and feel very much impacted by the way their country is run and the way local or perhaps national laws and policies are affecting the local residents. Mm -hmm. How do the Ugandan characters feel about their home and their citizenship? Very conflicted because they're having to wrestle with the truth of personal identity, uh, religious beliefs, um, familial bonds with um, something that is being sanctioned by the government and by the church at that time. So um, the the really wonderful thing about what Chris Urch, the playwright, has done with the play is that he really centers it on this family. So you get to see how these policies and laws are really impacting at the nuclear level, like within the families themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that there's one character who is specifically not from Uganda. He's from Ireland. Yes. And he comes to Uganda to practice medicine and begins um, a sort of a secret relationship 
with another man, Dembe, who was one of the, the core family members that we meet in the play. And as their relationship becomes both more intense and more dangerous, Sam tries to coerce Dembe to come back to Ireland with him, and Dembe resists. Why do you think he is staying in a place, in a home that is still so dangerous for him? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so the thing about Sam is that he's mixed race. His mother is Ugandan and his father is Irish. So he comes to Uganda because he has some roots there um, and, and is practicing medicine and so falls in love with this man who then, when realizing just how dangerous it is to be uh, gay in this country, decides that the way that he can help is to take him away and to leave. And it's an interesting question whether to stay or whether to go. I personally, as a gay man, realized early on that I couldn't stay in the country where I was born because I wouldn't be able to be open um, mm -hmm. and myself in that country. And so I understand that question about whether to stay or whether to go. I went to Uganda actually in February to meet some people there because I, you know, I'm Kenyan born and raised, but I've never been to Uganda. So I felt like I had to go there in order to um, see the place myself and also to meet some people who had been directly impacted. And I met this trans individual, Sean Mugisha, who is living as a trans person in Kampala, understanding very much what the danger is to their lives, but said to me that they would rather stay in Uganda among their people rather than leave because, you know, they said, well, if I go to the West, I'm going to encounter racism. And I'd rather be in a place where I don't encounter those things because being trans, you're going to have a difficult life wherever you go. Mm -hmm. So it's a really wow. interesting question about, you know, whether to stay or whether to go when your identity is in direct peril as a result of who you are. When you were in Uganda, how did you organize your trip? Did you look for local community centers that were LGBTQ that maybe were on the down low? I met a playwright, Asimwe Deborah. I sent her the play. So I said, I'm coming. I want to meet some people who have been directly impacted. So I want to meet activists. I'd like to meet some students. I'd like to meet some people who potentially were around the time of the Rolling Stone. Because this publication, the Rolling Stone, came out in 2010 in Kampala. So I said, um, I want to meet some people. So she helped me organize these interviews while I was there for two weeks. Is the publication still in existence? No, the publication only had a lifespan of about three months. And the, the Supreme Court actually outlawed it because it had directly impacted people's lives really dangerously. And so um, the government actually stepped in to outlaw the tabloid for outing people. It seems like the tension between where you're from and where you feel at home, I find to be a really interesting element in your work, uh, the work that I've seen. I noticed on your Facebook page that you wrote that you voted in every election since you became a citizen <laughs> Absolutely. of America Absolutely. in 2010, Absolutely. Uh, which I found very moving and very necessary for every citizen, not just yeah. the ones who are newer. Yeah, um, I think it's really important. I think it's really important to exercise the rights you have as a, as a citizen because it's something you can take for granted. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot to take for granted and um, the ability to impact the laws and just to feel like you are embedded in your community and what that means. And every level of community from the, your neighborhood, your block in the city, to your, to, your, to your city, to your state, to your country. I mean, at every level, you are a presence. And so you have to make your presence felt. So when I became a citizen, I, I made a vow that I would vote at every single election that yeah. I could. So you alluded earlier to the impulse to move. I had thought from articles I read about you that it was to pursue the arts in college. Yes, it was. I came here for school, but I came here and I realized that I could live here and be 
a gay man openly here in a way that I couldn't back home. So when I came, I had no idea if I was going to stay or if I was going to go back to Kenya. Mm -hmm. Both options were open for me. But it became really clear for me very quickly after I came here that this was going to be my home. Wow. So when you were pursuing the arts as a career and trying to kind of make it as a director and um, going to grad school and getting roles and things like that, were you intending to pursue your citizenship? Was was that all building around that same time? No, no, not at all. Like actually, in terms of pursuing the arts, that was like a very secret desire of mine because my parents wouldn't let me study the arts. So I came in as a computer science major. And then I switched my major without telling my parents when I was in college. And only till right before graduation did I tell them that I'd actually was like a theater major. <laughs> and so they weren't very happy with that. But I, you know, I came in just not knowing, not knowing what path I would go on in terms of where my life would lead or what career I would be in. I really loved the arts for such a long time. But in Kenya, you can only be an artist as a hobby. Like no one makes a living from it, you know, mm-hmm. at least in the performance level. So I always imagined I'd be doing, you know, plays or musicals or on the side, but never as a career. So that dawned on me being here that it could actually be a lifestyle that I could pursue. Yeah. If I can ask, were you able to come out to your family? And if so, which was more challenging? Actually, the coming out was more challenging. Pursuing an artistic career, I knew that I would have to do it. And even if I had to be underhanded about it, like switching my major. But, you know, I come from a place where their traditional values and religious values, very similar to what you see in the Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. That's why I could empathize with those characters that are very deep level, both uh, Dembe, who is unsure of who he is and how to pursue it, and with Joe, who is grappling with his homophobia and just sense of responsibility to his family, to his church. And so I, I, I know both sides of the coin very, very deeply. So I, I feel like I was able to bring that personal experience to our artistic process. And then the piece that I couldn't bring, which is because I'm not Ugandan, even though I'm East African, was to, you know, just to take a trip there, just to, to bring a little bit of what I experienced firsthand into the room. Yeah. I think one thing that I found so moving about the Rolling Stone is that Joe, the brother, as you mentioned, um, is a pastor and he is really dynamic and passionate. And you get the sense that he he genuinely is coming from a place of real belief. Yes. Yes. Um, and faith. And caring and protection. He wants to protect and care for his family. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's a an element of nuance there that can sometimes be lost in conversations about homosexuality and, and how gay people are embraced or lack thereof in America. Mm-hmm. Because I think in communities that are more religious, there are some people who just are uncomfortable with it and it isn't related to that whatsoever. Correct. And that's its own issue to overcome. But I think for people who are religious, there is a real tension that comes from, I want to be caring and embracing, but I don't know how to reconcile this. Right, right. And I really found that with Joe. And it's it's exciting to see art, I guess because so much art comes from a liberal perspective. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to see that perspective of he's not trying to do wrong. Right. Was your family religious and did you bring some kind of knowledge of that into that directing role? Yes, I was raised very religious Muslim. So I understand what it means to be have an orthodox practice that is very black and white, you know, right and wrong, good and evil, very little middle ground. And so I understand that. So that conflict that he has in the play and James Udom, who plays the character of Joe as well, like I think he, he also came from a religious background. So uh, it's helpful to have that in yeah, your DNA so that you Christian. really understand. Yes, Christian. Mm-hmm. Just to really understand like what a trial it is to overcome. Interesting to know that because it's a very authentic 
portrayal. I mean, it's like a haunting. Yeah, yeah. They are, <laughs> they are extraordinary actors. It's an extraordinary cast. What's your relationship to Kenya now that you're an American citizen? I am a Kenyan citizen as well, so I'm a dual citizen of both countries. I don't vote in any elections there. I don't follow the political scene there. Um, I hold on to it as just a part of my identity. I lived there 20 years of my life, and so it's a part of me that I take with me. But I really believe in being a force in the place where you exist, and I exist here. Some people who are immigrants or who are dual citizens are able to have like one foot in this country and one in the other, follow what's going on, care about it, and I, I, I can only care about where I am, where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So my community, my artistic community, my New York community has really become the one that I am more embedded in right now. Your plays, the ones that I've seen, I've seen three of your works so far, each are are very bold in going to quite heavy, quite dark places, uh, quite dramatic and uh, dire kinds of situations. But one thing that I really appreciate is that in each of those three, and, and I'm sure many others, you weave in moments, not just of levity, but of uh, like a diversion of serious mood where there's either just pure dance or pure, um, or pure always, song. Always dance. Yes. Always, yeah. And it, it could be a marriage falling apart. Yes. And there's a dance sequence. <laughs> and I was like, what a strange moment to have a dance sequence. But then I was like, I totally get it. These are dances they did together of yeah. all the years they were in love. Yeah. So it's sort of like a farewell. How do you think about merging those moments in, especially when the script of the play is, is quite weighty? You have to find them. You have to find those moments because they don't always exist on the page in a way that kind of leaps out at you. So I just feel like it's the truth. It's tr the truth of life. From the very ancient times of two masks, you have the smiling and the sad mask side by side, you know, and that's where the true dramatic impact lies, I feel, because it's the truth of life. Like we have intense joy and we have intense pain and those two things can live side by side. I lost someone very close to me two years ago. And I will never forget that on the day that we buried him, we all gathered and we had one of the most intense, joyous parties that evening, you know? And it was because of that moment of us gathering in that deep sadness that we we just like, we had all this joy inside us that we just needed to let out. We needed to hold on to what it means to still keep on living in mm -hmm. the face of tragedy, you know? So for me, it's so important to wring those moments out of even the most like dire tragic script. Like you have to find them. Otherwise, it just doesn't have the same kind of impact that I feel like I would like to have when I go to the theater. What was cool about it was one part of the dance was like a slow dance, sort of like gentle rocking. And then it got like dance hall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was like, it was so incongruous. But I thought like these people are kind of at the end of their ropes. Yeah. yeah so yeah. a big part of the conflict in that, in that play is not only a marriage dissolving or, or maybe leading that way, but also the idea of being an active protester in America. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking about that phrase, dissent is patriotic, mm -hmm. that people now have on posters and t-shirts in our, in our current day when people go to rallies and such, and how in a play like The Rolling Stone, dissent is not patriotic. Dissent is probably a death sentence. Right, right. And what does it mean to be a citizen in different kinds of environments where... In America, we take it as 
a given because we have the First Amendment that protest and a free press and all those elements that can shine a light on people in power is embedded into the Constitution and embedded into democracy and embedded into American citizenship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at other places, it is quite literally not. Right. And in some ways in America, there's tension even of that. Like, are you allowed to protest and who is allowed? Mm -hmm. How do all those ideas come into play as you step into the rehearsal room? The Rolling Stone, by coincidence or by some kind of spiritual happenstance, the preview period was during Gay Pride. Uh-huh. And this year it was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Yeah. So it was not lost on us, just that incredible kind of synergy of that happening in that moment where we've come so far in this country, especially like, I, you know, I have a husband, like we're married, like I have the ability to be with someone who I love of the same sex and it's okay. So how far things have come, but how far they haven't been. And so when you do a play like The Rolling Stone, where the situation is much dire than it is where you are, it makes you take stock and appreciate how what you have and the place where you are, but also remember that not everyone has the freedoms and protections that you do. And also about how precarious our situation is. Then, you know, the Supreme Court is about to rule on protections for LGBTQ individuals on a federal level, and we might not get that. So the paradox for people who are LGBTQ is that we've come so far, but at the same time we haven't. And mm-hmm. so citizenship is one of those things like it's it's not a universal right it depends on your citizenship what kind of protections you get what kind of freedoms you get and back to your question when you asked me about you know leaving or staying i am so in awe of people who are lgbtq who decide to stay and make a difference in their countries Hmm. i did this play called dangerous house by jen silverman in williamstown last year set in south africa where an activist, this woman who was fighting for protection of women who were suffering corrective rape, men are raping them to make them straight, even though South Africa has gay marriage. And the police were turning a blind eye on this. And so the play is centered on a very real individual, a real woman who actually built a safe house and is staying there to make a difference for women who have been subjected to this kind of rape. Uh, And the story deals with a woman who stays and a woman who's left. And so I find my, these stories keep coming to me about queerness in Africa and like just the conflict of whether you stay and, and face that and whether you leave. And, you know, I myself, I left. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not staying on. My activism is in my art. Like I help tell these stories and bring whatever I can to bring authenticity and truth to them. But people are putting their lives on the line for that. Yeah. So I think about that a lot and I appreciate so much the people who stay, but I also acknowledge that I have the intense privilege and luxury of being able to, having been able to leave as well. Yeah. Back to the topic of religion and citizenship. This coming fall, you are doing one of my favorite plays ever, which is Fires in the Mirror (laughs) uh, by Anna DeVere Smith. And it's such like an amazing opportunity just to work with her or be in the same, I'm sure, even though I guess rehearsals probably haven't. They haven't started. We're in auditions though, and it has been like extraordinary. She is a force. She's amazing. Wait, is it not just her? Oh no, she's not in it. She's not going to be in it. We are casting an actor Whoa. to be in the part. Yeah. So she's present. She's advising. She's in the room, but she's not going to be playing the role. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell so, me? So Signature um, has brought on Anna DeVere as one of their resident playwrights. And um, so this season, the two revivals of her plays, yes. Spies in the Mirror, which I'm directing, which will have one actor, and Twilight Los Angeles, which Tabi Magar is directing, which will mm-hmm. have four actors. None of those are going to be Anna DeVere Smith. 
Um, huh. And then I believe they've commissioned her to write a new play, which I'm not sure whether she will be in or not. But this is the first time that her plays are going to be done in New York without her in them. That's so amazing. And I was wondering about that because when she did Fires in the Mirror and Twilight last time, I mean, it was decades ago when she originally did them. But on the other hand, she did, uh, was it Notes on the Field? Yes, Notes from the Field. Um, yes. That was just a few years ago. That's a second stage, yes. I believe maybe five, six years ago. Yeah. So it wasn't as though like she thought I'm past acting, you know. No, no, but that was a new work. Correct. So I think, yeah, she's less interested in being in a revival piece and just allowing someone else to come in and interpret. Yeah. Will she be in the rehearsal room with you as sort of a co-director? No, not at all. She's been very generous with to me and Taby and said that, you know, she's uh, she's letting us take these pieces with these actors we're going to have and make it our own. I'm just, taking, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just taking all this in. Fascinating. So is it going to be potentially a man or a woman? Yes, it's open. Wow. Okay, very interesting. So what's so interesting about that work and what was so tragic about the actual riots, and this is also true for Twilight, with the LA riots, is you have these two different populations in the case of Fires in the Mirror, the Orthodox Lubavitch population of Crown Heights, Brooklyn, um, and the black community who was there and largely comprised of Caribbean um, black individuals. The sort of tension, that sort of Cold War-ish until something erupts between race and between religion Mm -hmm. um, is sort of under the surface the whole time. And then when this event happens, which initially was actually an accidental killing where a car hit a child and the child was killed. It set off intentional rioting. And an intentional murder. Yes. But I think what she does in this work is just really goes into the myriad perspectives of people living in that environment to say like, it wasn't just the one thing. It's so many things. It's people who are black in the neighborhood feeling like they're not seen. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's people who are Jewish in the neighborhood feeling like their religion is not respected or what it's so many different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep, I always think about the idea of religion with citizenship because the idea of religious liberty is a major platform in America mm-hmm. for, for maybe more conservative voters. And in this play, again, it's not like people who are deliberately trying to maybe squash the other community, but it comes to a head because there's this tension that just sits. Right. Just how do you bring together those different things when you have the racial component and the religious component? Like, what are your thoughts going into it? Yeah, well, the, it's it's scary how prescient that piece is and how it feels like, even though it was in 1991, like we are living in the same moment where we are side by side with differences and whatever differences those may be, whether they're religious or racial, political, especially political, I think we can definitely relate to how we are side by side with our fellow citizens and at odds with each other. I mean, it reminded me of that incident, the MAGA, the boy with the MAGA hat in DC with the Native American elder and how that quickly had the possibility to ignite such discord because it looked like many things from many different perspectives, Mm -hmm. but we are so ready to make assumptions about our neighbors and pick on differences rather than on our similarities. And so the piece just feels like even more relevant than it possibly could right now. 
yeah, I'm just I'm really excited to dive into that. No one writes like her. No one writes like her anymore. No one mm-hmm. performs like her. She's an anthropologist. She's an artist. She's mm-hmm. like so many Historian. things. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to go on that journey. Yeah, it's such an exciting challenge, I'm sure. Do you yeah, know- it's the first time I've worked on a revival, actually. Ah. I've, I've been doing um, almost exclusively new plays in New York, so. Do you know- Besides the the widespread attention that I'm sure it will get and the the ticket sales that will just flow in because it's such a, an important and famous and popular work, do you know if the signature has ideas about how to get people in the theater who are from those two backgrounds in a strong way? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Actually, something to explore. I'm not sure if they've done any kind of uh, advanced thinking about that. Uh-huh. I'm sure they have. So the other thing that you haven't done yet is a musical, and that's coming up, I think, for the first time. Is that yes. right? Yes. So because you have this knack for weaving in music and dance anyway, how does it shape your kind of directorial thinking when it is the prominent form of storytelling? Yeah, I love musicals. Musicals are what got me into the theater. I saw a production of Grease when I was in my teens and it just like kind of blew my mind. So I feel like I've very secretly been, you know, a musical theater geek on the inside and just like waiting for the right moment. But I I always felt like it had to be an original piece. And I always wanted a piece that I could kind of draw from my own experience in childhood. So this piece that I'm working on with Jocelyn Bio, who is the book writer, and Michael Thurber, who is the composer, is adapted from a myth that I read in high school in Kenya about the goddess Marimba. And so we've been working on it. Um, and we just came from New York City in film where we did a two-week workshop of the piece together. And the reason I love musicals is it just expands the sense of the theatrical on stage. I mean, hmm. I love moments that break out of reality anyway. Any piece that tries to do that in some way that I feel like I haven't seen on stage draws me in. And so I feel like a musical just inherently does that because people don't sing in real life unless they're in the shower or at karaoke. <laughs> I've always wanted to be part of an original musical that kind of expanded the sense of what musical theater can be. So this is an entirely new African story, which I've, there's never been an entirely new African musical. You know, that in recent memory, Fela was on Broadway, huh, but that was yeah. essentially a jukebox musical because it was using all of Fela Kuti's yes. music. So this has been a dream of mine. And I just feel like I finally found the right collaborators in Jocelyn and Michael. That's really cool. So is the music specifically Kenyan style or? No. So um, the music is very expansive. It's set in a club, in a jazz club in in Kenya, in, in Mombasa, which is a coastal city. And the thing that most people don't know is that when you go to these clubs in places like Kenya, they play everything, mm-hmm. everything, everything. I mean, you would just be surprised at like the breadth and scope of the kind of music that's in there. So kind of inspired by that, like the scope of the music in the in the musical is also very expansive. You have Afrobeat, you have Chakacha, but you also have jazz. You have a little bit of like rap slash pop. It's very, very expansive, but rooted in Kenya. Very cool. And yeah. when can people see that? Uh, well, we're still working. This workshop was uh, a chance for us to go in and kind of hone in on the script. And we were really happy with what we came out of. So... To be continued. (laughs) (laughs) So in that piece in the New York Times, you just referred to it where you talked about seeing Greece for the first time. It's this really excellent personal essay that you wrote um, in the New York Times about how you started directing and you did this low budget version of Greece with no set and, you know, scrappy props that you put together in your (laughs) high school. Very scrappy. 
And you were Danny, of course. I, of course. I was Danny. I directed. I choreographed. Like I was slow just, combing you know, your hair back. I, yeah. <laughs> the little kinky hair that I had, wishing I could grease it back. So, um, so it's a really charming essay. But one thing that I was drawn to, and I was thinking about talking to you about citizenship, and then I had read it uh, like when it first came out, when mm-hmm. the, whenever that piece came out. And then just in the past couple of days, I'm thinking about speaking with you today. I went back to reread it, and there it was in the end of your essay. You said that now as a director, you've moved on to portraying more challenging issues like the responsibility of citizenship. Mm -hmm. I was like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's all coming together. So what do you mean by that? We have a responsibility to appreciate the privileges that we have. We have intense privileges here in this country um, that people don't have in the rest of the world. I feel like as an immigrant, I have a unique perspective on that because I know what I had and didn't have before and what I do have now. So I try and bring that into every room that I'm in, every rehearsal space, an appreciation for the health that we have, an appreciation for the fact that we live in a society where we can be artists, where we can have a voice and tell stories and not be afraid of censorship or repression in this particular community that we're in, in this New York community, this theater community, that is my community. And that that is a responsibility to that. And so fostering a positive environment, allowing expression, um, allowing people to be the best that they can be and their truest selves is a great responsibility. And I take that seriously as a leader, as an artistic leader, and as someone who has a responsibility to shepherd a creative project. And so I think of that in the macro, but also the micro. So I think of that in my daily practice as an artist, but also, as I said, just in terms of like voting, in terms of being yeah. keeping abreast of what's happening in the national discourse. After the election, like a lot of people, I was very conflicted about, you know, what does it mean to be an artist and to do art in this age of this president who I disagree with so vehemently, but what can I do? Like, I'm not a politician. I'm an artist. How can I bring the political into my art? Should I start making political theater instead of instead of non-political theater? Um, so I asked or all what these, is political theater? or what is political theater? Yeah. Is it, is it, is it only when it's against the government? Is it Julius Caesar with someone who looks like <laughs> Trump, you know, or what is it, or is it political to, to tell stories of people of color stepping into their truth, having power, allowing their identity to come forward? That is political as well. Casting choices that reflect variety and diversity in every way possible, not just the way that we can think of. What are my blind spots? What am I not thinking of? What are my own personal prejudices that I'm not even aware of? Just really thinking of how to expand my own sense of what it means to be a citizen in this country. Yeah. You know, there's a line in the very end of Angels in America where Pryor is giving that final monologue in front of the angel statue in Mm -hmm. Central Park. And, you know, he says that the great work begins. Mm -hmm. It concludes the play. Mm -hmm. And he has this one line, we will be citizens. And it's always been a line that I paused over because of course he he is an American citizen and so is everyone you encounter in the play. Yeah. And I think through the kind of work that you do and the kind of conversations that you're having, there's this other element that's like not just are you counted, are you physically included? Yeah. But what do you do as a citizen? What do you do that is active? And what do you do that is responsible and that is conscious and that is aware and awake and all that, all those things. Right. So thank you for bringing that to the conversation. Of course. No, thank you. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's great. You're like truly one of the busiest people I see in, uh, in theater. And um, 
I just wish you so much luck. It's great talking to you. Thanks, Lonnie. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.